Uh, we're going to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, we, we've been kind of trucking along and we've been looking at Paul's defense of the reality and doctrine of resurrection in chapter 15. Uh, back on the 12th, we looked at the section where he described resurrection as truth, as necessary, as patterned, and as restorative. In the next section, Paul continues his defense by describing some additional consequences if there were no resurrection. Uh, this section that we're going to look at actually parallels with chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, where Paul lays out seven negative consequences if there is no resurrection. So it's kind of like what he's done is he's laid out these consequences. He took a quick break to talk about some other facets of resurrection, and now he's kind of swinging back around to consequences again. And this is a, a normal pattern in Paul's writings. Uh, sometimes he'll talk about a subject, and then he'll leave it for a moment and then come back. And it makes it very challenging for preachers knowing, you know, trying to figure out where to break and, and stop and continue. So uh, I felt that challenge this week. But he's going back to some consequences. And this time he appeals to baptism. You know, our, we have two sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and he's already dealt with that quite a bit in, previous, in a previous chapter. But now he's going to talk about baptism. He appeals to baptism, which literally symbolizes dying and, and being buried and being raised. And he's also going to talk about his own personal brushes with death and danger. So he's going to use baptism and his own personal struggles and, and the dangers that he faced to promote resurrection. He's really going to say that if resurrection wasn't true, then why would I have been in danger and why would we have Christian baptism? That's really the the logic of the next section. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'll just say that these examples that he gives are they're punctuated with rhetorical questions that show that these things would be absolutely meaningless, like baptism and, and struggle for Christ and these things. They'd just be worthless and meaningless if there were no resurrection. So that's the driving point behind the text. That's what we're going to look at. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're, we're going to settle on 29 to 32 this morning. I had every intention of going all the way through to, I think, verse 31 or 32, but I could already tell the sermon was going to be potentially long and then get really long if I tried to hammer out these other points. It's really four points in the totality of the section. We're just going to look at the first two today and stop at 32. And then we'll look at the other two points, Lord willing, this coming Sunday. Let's pray for God's help before we get to work. Lord, we humble ourselves and uh, recognize that uh, this, is, uh, this is that moment in the service where we worship you through the preaching and ministry of your word, and we ask that you help us be attentive and humble, that you'd soften our hearts through the power of the Spirit, that we wouldn't just hear truth, that we would believe truth, apply truth, live truth, especially pertaining to the resurrection, such a consequential, important doctrine. It's one of the key doctrines in, in the Christian faith, and we've been looking at it, and we're, we're thrilled that we've been looking at it, not just at Easter, uh, but not even close to Easter, more like close to Christmas. We're looking at this doctrine, but we're thankful for what you've taught us thus far, and we're looking forward to what you'll teach us today and in the coming weeks, Lord willing. May we humble ourselves now and listen to your instruction. May this congregation hear you through your word, not Phil. 
or anyone else. And so um, we love you and thank you for what you'll do and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So again, it's four-point sermon. We'll do two today and two this coming Sunday. I want to pick up where we left off on the 12th. And I, just before I even do that, I just want to thank Dave for stepping in and uh, ministering to you guys. That was great. I did get to watch that from home and uh, just really enjoyed that message. Thanks, Dave. Pretty soon you're the one going to get the uh, salary. So, uh, right? By the way, the church only pays about five grand a year, so it's not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so one of these days maybe, huh? But thank you for stepping in, man. It's nice to know that we have able-bodied men at the church. So thank you, David. Thank you, Jen, for loaning him to us. Now let's get to work. Let's look at that first point for this morning. This is the very next thing that Paul says in the text. And the point is this. Uh, we see it in verse 29, but the point is this. If there were no resurrection, remember, we're talking about consequences. If there were no resurrection, baptism would be an empty false sacrament, it just would be useless and worthless. It wouldn't be something that would be worth practicing because it, 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 it entirely really kind of demonstrates and deals with mostly burial and resurrection. And so verse 29 is where he says this. Very next thing he says is otherwise, remember he's talking about if there's no resurrection. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So the thing about the verse is it's a little tricky the way it's worded. I know he's, we all know that he's talking about baptism. I mean, the, the word is there, but he appears to be speaking of another type of baptism. Baptism, some kind of baptist, you know, baptism ritual for people who have already died, maybe like what we would see in Mormonism or something like that. It has the appearance of that. That's not what he means, but... It has the appearance of it, but I would just simply begin by saying it looks like he's using a strange wit ritual, baptism for the dead, to, to really just make a logical point. In Christianity, we, we know, I guess the majority of us do if we're Christians, we've studied the Bible at any length, we know that baptism symbolizes death and resurrection or burial and resurrection. That's the symbolism of it, right? You know, the person is... They go under the water, that symbolizes burial. And then when they come up out of the water, it symbolizes resurrection. So that's the, the picture that literal water baptism, immersion baptism, that's what it symbolizes. And that's the picture that it makes. Uh, when you celebrate communion, you're picturing really the crucifixion and death of Christ. So in two sacraments, you've got really the whole gospel. You've got the death of Christ and our dying to Christ represented in and communion, and then you've got burial and resurrection represented in, in baptism. So you have the whole gospel in two sacraments. Of course, Roman Catholics have added, I don't know, five more uh, that don't have anything to do with those two. And we stick to the two as Protestants. So that's what we think the Bible teaches. So, But that's what it is, and that's what it represents. When they come up out of that water, it's, uh, it symbolizes Christ's life. It symbolizes Christ's resurrection. Baptism pictures a believer dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. That is the primary symbolism and meaning of baptism. A lot of people will say, well, baptism is an opportunity for a Christian to display and, you know, to use an outward display, to display an inward reality that they're saved. And that is true. It is a way for a person to demonstrate that they believe in Christ, their faith. But 
that's not the main purpose for baptism. It is to display the death of Christ and the burial of Christ and our death to self and, and death in Christ and then his resurrection and our future resurrection. That's the meaning of it. That's the broader, deeper meaning of it. That's the symbolism. So, so the ritual, Paul's point is this, the, the ritual or sacrament of baptism, it assumes that there will be a future resurrection. Right? It assumes it. I mean, you're, you're, you're symbolizing what Christ has done and what's going to be done to you. So it assumes that there is a future resurrection. And, and we have to... We have to qualify this. We do have some visitors and stuff today, and some of you that weren't here probably in the last couple of weeks, but the problem in the Corinthian church wasn't that they denied the resurrection of Christ. It was that they were denying the resurrection of themselves. And so Paul is using a logical argument. If you, you're baptized for the dead, per se, and there's no such thing as resurrection, what's the point? Because baptism assumes a future resurrection. It's based on a resurrection. In other words, if there was no future resurrection, there would be no sacrament or ritual called baptism. That's the logic of the verse. That's what he's saying. In verse 29, Paul is highlighting the absurdity of baptizing people, whether it be for dead people, which is what people think he means, or if we're, baptized, we're being baptized ourselves, whatever the case may be, wherever there is baptism, if a person does baptism and performs a ritual while rejecting the resurrection of the dead it's totally absurd it's ridiculous it's a waste of time what are you doing and apparently these people in this church had they, they may have had this weird ritual that paul is mentioning baptism for the dead i don't think so but maybe but no matter what even if they were performing regular christian baptisms the logic stands you're doing something that symbolizes a future event how can you say there is no future event while demonstrating it through this ritual. What, are you not using your minds? Are you not using your brains? This is, in effect, what Paul is saying in verse 29. If there is no future resurrection, then baptism, uh, which symbolizes death, burial, and resurrection, or primarily burial and resurrection, if there isn't a resurrection, then it becomes an empty false sacrament, a complete waste of time. And there's absolutely no difficulty in verse 29 here with Paul's logic. It's easy to understand. It's sound. The difficulty doesn't lie in the logic. Baptism assumes that there will be a resurrection. That's the logic. I mean, any one of us can understand that. The difficulty doesn't lie in the logic. It lies in the example he used. He said baptism for the dead. What, what is that? Is that an actual ritual? Is that something that people did or do? Or did people then get baptized for those who had died? Surprisingly, the answer is yes. Yeah. And now you're thinking, as a Christian, is this something that I need to add to my Christian repertoire? No, it is not. But it is something that they did. It's something that some who name Christ today still do. It was around. Now, back in Paul's day, the ritual was practiced by pagans, unbelievers, and they did it in Corinth and in other parts of the Roman Empire, primarily in Corinth. In Corinth, this baptism for those who had passed away was part of the mystery religions, Greco-Roman religion. We, we call those mythologies now, but they were real religions with real worshipers 
in that day. They're myths to us, but they weren't myths to them then. But in those mystery religions, this is a very real practice. We have our sacrament of baptism symbolizing burial and resurrection. Well, the pagans in Corinth had their own type of baptism for the dead, people who had already died. I need to get baptized for my grandmother who passed away last year. She wasn't a Christian, and I'll get baptized for her, and maybe that'll make her more savable. This is the thinking in the first century, kind of a bizarre thought. So it was practiced primarily by pagans, and it did, unfortunately, become popular in some Christian circles, more specifically the movement called Martianism, Martianism, not like Martian, like, you know, space guy. Martian, it's M-A-R-C-I-O-N, Martian. Martianism made this practice very popular. Uh, its founder, Martian, was a Christian theologian based in Rome, and he developed and taught all sorts of strange doctrines. The most popular strange doctrine he taught was called dualism. And that's the idea that there's two gods. There's a God over the Old Testament. There's a God over the New Testament. The God over the Old Testament was really mean and grouchy and angry and smoked people all the time and burned up everyone, and he was a jerk. And then, and then, but the God of the New Testament is really nice and very loving and very kind, and it's a much better God than the God of the Old Testament. That's the dualism. There's two gods, one of the Old Testament, one of the New. One's mean, one's nice. He also taught... The rejection of the Old Testament, like it's not a legitimate body of, 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 of scripture to study and learn from. Kind of sounds a little bit like Andy Stanley these days who says, we don't need it. It's amazing when you say we don't need it because all of the law is recorded in it, which shows us our need of Jesus. So if we get rid of the Old Testament, we don't even know why we need to be saved. So we have modern-day examples of these things, but these uh, Marshawn taught, hey, we don't need the Old Testament. That was a different God. He also taught baptism for the dead, which is what Paul appears to be saying here, challenging, and all sorts of other things. Is baptism for the dead scriptural? Is it a legitimate Christian sacrament and ritual? No, it's not. Marshawn and his teachings were vigorously opposed by a disciple of John by the name of Polycarp. And he's not a fish. He was a guy. He, he became the bishop of Smyrna. Very sound, solid Christian man. Very good leader, early church father, one of the earliest. Actually, legend has it, history says that he actually knew John the Apostle. He was a disciple of him. And, and so Polycarp he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Marshawn. He, he hammered him. Uh, he opposed him all the time on, on those distortions. And unfortunately, Polycarp was burned at the stake in 155 AD, and after he was burned at the stake, his contemporary and good friend Justin Martyr, can you imagine having the last name Martyr? I'd just be waiting to die if that was my last name. Phil Martyr, I'd be saying when. When am I going to be martyred? But this guy, Justin Martyr, was a very good friend of Polycarp, and he kind of wrote, uh, he wrote, he did write, he didn't kind of, he wrote the very first extra-biblical apologetic or defense of the Christian faith. I say extra-biblical because the Bible defends itself all the time, but this was a man, a godly man, obviously spirit-filled, who wrote 
a defense of the Christian faith, an outside of the Bible defense, very first one called First Apology. And he wrote it in response to the martyr of, to the, to the murder and martyrdom of Polycarpus' friend. This guy's a great guy. I loved him. He was a godly man. There was no reason for officials to kill him. He writes First Apology in response to that. Very, very first Christian apologetic called First Apology. And in uh, the first portion of chapter three of that writing, that book, Justin attempts to advise the rulers as to the merits of Christianity. He's essentially saying in, in the onset of chapter three, Christianity benefits people. You don't need to come at it so hard. You don't need to oppose it. It benefits culture and society. And you killed a good man, my friend Polycarp, for no reason. And, he kind of reasons this out, and he's trying to defend Christianity as not just a legitimate religion, but one that doesn't mean anyone any harm, and you don't need to be afraid and kill our leaders. So he does that in the first part. In the second portion of chapter 3, he deals explicitly with Marson. He places Marson not only outside of the Christian back then, they kind of called it a Christian philosophy, but he places him outside of the Christian philosophy. Not only does he do that, but he also places him within the tutelage or possession of demons. He points out in the, the second part of chapter 3 that this guy who claims to be a Christian is teaching false doctrine, and he has more in common with demons than he does with us or with Polycarp or anyone else. And I think the best way to refute error isn't just to go after the error, it is to restate the truth clearly, right? Sometimes errors come into the church because the men of God, the guys who are preaching, are not laying out the Christian faith clearly and doctrinally from the pulpit. That guards against error just as much as writing apologetics or arguing for the faith. So one of the best ways to, to refute error isn't to spend all your time talking about the error, it's to spend all of your time talking about the truth. Because when you give people a clear picture of the truth, they can now sniff out error for themselves. They can say, okay, this is the real genuine article, we know what it is, and that means this over here is the counterfeit. And that's what he does, that's how he deals with Marshawn's errors, by laying out what baptism is. It's not something that we do for people who have already died. They're not savable or anything like that. They had their shot, so to speak. And so he does that. I would say that giving people the genuine article empowers them to sniff out counterfeits on their own and to stand with the truth. And that's what Justin did regarding baptism and first apology. And that is how he inevitably or ultimately defeated Marshawn, by laying out a clear case and by empowering people to know the truth for themselves and to now sit before Marshawn and say, he's off, he's wrong. And some of Justin's successors use the exact same tactic to bring down other heretics and doctrinal distortions like Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian. They all defended Christian baptism by restating it and laying out what it actually is. So, if, if baptism for the dead is unscriptural and heretical, right, if we know this to be true, we know that Polycarp went after it and so did others that came after him, if it is untrue, if it's unscriptural, if it's heretical, if it's apostate, if it's a false sacrament being baptized for the dead as Mormons and others do, the Martianites, is that what Paul's actually using or why did he use that as an example in verse 29? Why, why, would you, why would you do that? See, that's the million-dollar question here. Again, remember, the logic is clear. 
think of any type of baptism which represents burial and resurrection. If there's no resurrection, why do we do it at all? The logic's clear. It's the example that Paul uses that's confusing and has baffled minds that are far beyond my pay grade for a very, very long time, for nearly 2,000 years. So is that what he's talking about? That is the million-dollar question here. Is it baptism of the dead, the real deal, the Martian deal? That, is that what he's talking about here? And this is the confusion here in the wording, even in the original language. It's why even John MacArthur says of verse 29, it's one of the most difficult verses in all Scripture to interpret. I have a pretty high view of MacArthur. There's other theologians that I like as much. I like Sproul and others. Uh, uh, but MacArthur just comes right out and says, this is a very, 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 if not one of the hardest verses to understand, to interpret into our language so that we can grab a hold of it. And I think he's right. I think it is challenging. Is that what Paul's talking about? Now, now listen to this. The view of MacArthur, MacArthur does not think that he's talking about some kind of vicarious baptism for dead people which is what Marshawn ran with and Mormons and others have run. MacArthur says, no, that's not what he's talking about at all. If you read his commentary, you find out very quickly he doesn't have that view. But that's not the consensus view by other commentators. David Garland, he has a wonderful commentary on 1 Corinthians. He wrote this, the majority of commentators today think that Paul refers to some kind of vicarious baptism for dead persons. That Paul means exactly what he appears to be saying. That there is a ritual f that exists out there, and it existed then and it exists today, and that he's, he's using that ritual to be baptized for the dead as, as his example. The majority of commentators say, yes, that's absolutely what he's doing. MacArthur says, no, that's not what he's doing. They believe that Paul did use the pagan ritual known as baptism for the dead to make his logical point. They also say that Paul's use of it here does not make Paul a supporter of it. Like, you know, yeah, this is legitimate Christianity. This is a legitimate baptism. They say it doesn't necessarily mean that he means that. They say he's not necessarily a, su a supporter of it, but he's more or less an exploiter or user of it since it was popular and known to the Corinthians. Now, that's a challenging opinion because we do know that it was around when Marshawn was around in the middle 100s, 140, 150. Paul, Paul's writing this in the, in the 50s AD. And so some say, yes, this ritual existed in the mystery religion. I think I agree with that. Whether or not it was being practiced by Christians or the Corinthians would have been all that familiar with it, no one can be certain to that. You can't just say because it was present around Corinth or in the Greco-Roman world that, you know, the Corinthians were practicing or knew exactly what it was. So they say, yes, he's speaking of something literally, but doesn't necessarily mean he supports it. And, and as I said, the majority of interpreters, the majority of commentarians say, yes, that's, that's the way it is. Well, and MacArthur disagrees, and I disagree with it as well. And I don't disagree with it for the same reasons that MacArthur does. Isn't that a surprise? Right? Oh, Phil, you're just all about MacArthur. Like you have a room edition at your house where he stays over on the weekends. No, I don't follow any, any other pastor like that. You know, I'm called to follow Jesus, I'm called to study the word for myself. 
you know, uh, but no, I, I, I disagree with Paul using a literal ritual, just like MacArthur does, but some of my reasoning is, uh, it just varies a little bit from him. I'll explain why, okay? So I, I don't agree with the consensus view. I don't think that Paul was using a literal ritual. First reason why I don't, and, and I'd say in my humble opinion, it would be entirely illogical and even reckless for Paul to have used a dangerous pagan ritual as such without providing an explanation or refutation right there with the mentioning of it. it, it to me, it, I can't say yes to this because I think that as he wrote that, if he would have used a pagan ritual, something that was familiar to them, maybe he did, but if he did, I can't help but believe that he would have simultaneously refuted it right there. Why is that? Because of the context of the letter. He's writing to a group of people and to a church that gets almost everything wrong. If you're going to use some common pagan example with this group of people, you're going to need to distinguish it from truth from error here because with this group of people, they are what I say, what I like to call adventures in missing the point. So when you write to this group of people that got their own baptism wrong, everything wrong, resurrection wrong, now sexuality wrong, they got everything wrong, it's amazing that this was actually a church. We've scratched our heads and said, is it really a church? Yeah, Paul calls them brothers over and over and over. So somehow this group of people get almost everything wrong. Do you think it would have been wise or right for Paul to insert a pagan thing and make it seem feasible without giving some kind of explanation as to, oh, and by the way, don't practice this because it's not Christian? You can't do that with this group of people. This group of people is going to walk away from that verse. They would walk away from verse 29 saying, looks like Paul approves. We've got a new ritual now called baptism of the dead while completely missing his logic. The logic is what counts, not necessarily the example, but the example can cause some to believe that we do have such a ritual. The Martianites, the Mormons, well, the Mormons aren't really in the faith as it is, but there are some who have missed it and this group of people would have missed it so so I, I i can't go really along with this idea of him using a literal example without some kind of refutation of it this is not a benign doctrine the baptism of the dead it is heresy it is apostasy first of all we know that people who have passed away are not savable First of all, we know in Christian baptism, we aren't baptized for others. We step forward and demonstrate our faith and our commitment to the Lord and our death in Christ and our burial in Christ and our resurrection, future resurrection in Christ. We're not doing it for Fred. I don't do that for somebody else. I didn't do that 20 years ago in the river. And by the way, this is for my kids. Well, they're actually still alive, barely, because they didn't clean their room, but... Nobody gets baptized for someone else in our faith. Who's ever heard of that? But if you mention it without refuting it, I think the chances of a people that get almost everything wrong, of them getting this wrong as well and running with it, is very high. That's the logic that I use to refute it. I just don't think that it would have happened. Even Garland, uh, you know, I agree with Garland. He said, it seems unlikely that Paul would pass over without comment a practice that smacks of a magical view of sacramentalism of the worst kind. Such a ritual is not theologically benign since it completely bypasses the necessity 
for an individual to express his or her own faith to receive the benefits of Christ's death. Garland says, we don't get baptized for others. We do it as a demonstration of our faith and commitment to the Lord and ultimately his commitment to us and our future resurrection. So if Paul is going to use some kind of foreign baptism as an example because it was popular in Corinth, he better follow it with a correction because the Corinthians are going to miss the point and run crazy now with something else. Paul knew his audience. Plus, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he penned the letter. So it's really difficult for me to embrace the idea that he used a pagan ritual as an example without also safeguarding his readers by including a refutation of the ritual itself. The Corinthians needed all the help they could get, right? They don't need, they don't, they don't need vagueness. They need full explanation of the things of God always. That's why the letter is so exhaustive on the doctrines that they got wrong. You've got an entire chapter devoted to, to the Lord's Supper because they got that wrong. I mean, Paul gives every doctrine and sacrament, the sacrament of, of, of the Lord's Supper, he gives them a full treatment. He's not going to mention something in passing here without also saying, stay away from that, by the way. Why couldn't he just use real baptism as an example instead of a false type of baptism, right? Anyone in the audience, any of you think about that logically? Why pull something out of the pagan culture with a group of people that miss everything? Why not just use regular Christian baptism as an example? Newsflash, that's exactly what he's done here. It's just the wording that makes it a little confusing. They needed all the help they could get. So I don't think that he would have done that. It would have put them in further jeopardy, and they were already off course. Gosh, if they were headed to Hawaii, they were going to land in Guam. These people were way off. Secondly, so firstly, I don't think he would have taken that kind of risk. Secondly, I disagree with the common view because I believe Paul used the word dead, necros, not in reference to those who have literally died, but as a metaphor to describe believers in general and during and at their baptism. Okay? The word necros appears there dead, and it, it, it's used throughout the New Testament. It's used throughout the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it has various meanings. It doesn't always refer to someone who has physically died. Sometimes it refers to someone who has spiritually died. Sometimes it refers to one who will suffer the second death. Necro, same word. So it has a lot of different meanings. It doesn't always mean someone who's physically died and is buried. You have to know that and distinguish uh, the meaning of the Greek word necros here. And you really can't get to the bottom of that without doing some kind of exposition of the original language. But in any case, I, I think his use of it disqualifies the mainstream view. The Bible views believers. Now listen, I'll build a theology behind this word necros to refer to something other than just physically dead. But the Bible views believers. You a believer in Christ? The Bible views you this way. This is going to come as a surprise to you. It was a surprise to me, but it was a surprise to me like 20 years ago. The Bible views believers as, as physically dead, but spiritually alive in Christ. Romans 8.10. Did you know that? That's the way that the Bible describes me, that I am physically dead to my flesh, but spiritually alive to Christ and in Christ. I am a man who has died, 
and been spiritually raised to life and will be physically raised to life. That's what a Christian is. See, the trouble is, us Christians are running around trying to have our best life now. We're not trying to lay down our lives when the Bible, in fact, speaks of us as being dead. We're doing everything we can to save our lives and to increase our lives and to make our lives so wonderful. And the Bible says, Phil, you're dead. What are you doing? Romans 8.10, read it yourself. It's not my word. Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But, but I'm here. I'm in the pulpit. I'm preaching. Jen's not dead. She's staring at me. It's making me hot. I'm getting all sweaty up here. She's staring at me like, you better tell me what it means, buddy. Right? Yeah, but I am in a sense dead. But it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. What did Paul say in Galatians 2.20, verse A? I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Killed. I'm dead. Nobody survives crucifixion. Not even Jesus. Now he came out of it three days later, but at the cross, he died. I have been crucified with Christ. That means hung on a cross and killed. And he says this, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, the Bible uses all sorts of language, necros, death, dead language for Christians. We are a people who are dead to ourselves and dead to this world, yet fully alive in Christ. So we are a strange group, aren't we? A walking paradox. I'm a dead man who walks around alive in Christ. That's a paradox. So follow the logic. If believers are, in a sense, dead, as Scripture indicates, and there's more verses than what I gave you, when they are baptized, they are baptized on behalf of the dead, their selves. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? That's not interpretational gymnastics. That's not a word salad. The dead in the text are those who get dunked and go under, which symbolizes their deadness. And then when they come up, they symbolize their future resurrection, their new life in a new body, a glorified body. Since we are dead, when we are baptized, we are in a sense baptized for a dead person, you. That's the meaning. David Garland, again, the term dead is a metaphor for the condition of believers who receive baptism. The recipients are, in effect, dead bodies when they are baptized. Let me ask you this. You may not see yourself as a dead body right now, but will you be a dead body in the future unless Christ comes back? Who in this room believes they will one day die and be buried? You are a dead person. You're a dead man or dead woman walking, and one day, it's really going to happen. But the Bible likens us to being already dead. Why does it do that? So that we won't live for today, so that we won't live for ourselves, so that, that we won't pursue the desires of our flesh. We have to see ourselves as dead and dead to this world. 
and yet alive in Christ. Alive in a way in Christ that is so far beyond even this physical life. In fact, the Bible even says not only are we dead, but we are in Ephesians. It talks about how we are already seated with Christ. How can I be seated with him when I'm here? But I am seated with him. As if God's panoramic view of all things already has me in glory with Christ. This is the trouble with American evangelicalism today, that too many Christians see themselves as alive rather than dead. And they're pursuing their best life now. And that's not the calling of a Christian. It is to lay down one's life for the gospel. When I was baptized, oh gosh, probably almost 20 years ago, I was very much spiritually alive. You know, I got baptized just a few months after God saved me. And uh, I, was, I was on fire. I was already reading the Bible. I think by, by two months or so, I'd already read it cover to cover. I had no idea what I was reading, but I was reading it. I was amazed by simple words. Like, look at this word, babe. It's called it. And she's like, I don't see it. Right? I was just fascinated with the word, and I was very much spiritually alive, and I was reading like a madman and studying like a madman and trying to be involved in all things church. And, you know, gosh, the church saw me coming like, man, we can have that guy do everything from nursery to cleanup. Okay, sign me up. Have you ever changed a diaper? No, but I'm willing. Like, that's already weird. I should not be in there changing other kids' diapers. I didn't even change my own kids' diapers. I was like, Rachel! But I was ready to go, man. I was on fire. You know how they say that when you're newly converted? He was on fire. I don't know if that's the best metaphor because God has burned people up to death. But in any case, I was, I was just, I was on fire, man. I was very much spiritually alive, reading the word like crazy. And yet I was also a dead man walking because this flesh of mine is dead and it is headed for the grave. I entered the river as a dead man. I went under the water as a dead man. And when I came up out of the water, some would say, you were alive. No, I was still dead. <clears throat> Baptism doesn't do anything to you. It didn't make me alive. It didn't rescue me from the grave. It didn't wash away my sins either. The blood of Christ did that. The baptism was just symbolic of those things that had happened, but it didn't do a darn thing for me. In fact, the water was so cold, I was like, oh! It was like 32 snow melt. Right? Baptism was an opportunity for me to display not only my faith in Christ, but my deadness and my burial and my hope that one day this mortal body will be raised by Christ in glory. That's what it was. That's what I was out there symbolizing. That's what I was practicing. That's what I was displaying. You see, this is the baptism for the dead that Paul was pointing to in verse 29. Regular Christian baptism, not some pagan ritual that should be carried on by Christians or the Corinthians or anyone else. Sorry, Martianites and Mormons, you guys are wrong. Believers are the dead, and when a believer is baptized, he or she is baptized on behalf of the dead, his or herself. And they're going down as a symbolism of their, of their deadness and their death and their burial in Christ. And when they come up, they're not a new person. They already are a new creation in Christ. But when they come up, it symbolizes what's going to happen later. 
and their hope of glory and future resurrection. I'm a dead man going down, but one day this dead man will be raised up. That's the point of baptism. And that's what Paul is talking about. And this view was the unanimous view of the early Greek fathers. Chrysostom, it was around in 347 to 407 AD, he contends that, that the thought in verse 29 was actually used as an early baptismal confession. Like as if during baptism, believers way back, they would say something like, I am dead and I am buried with Christ, but I will be raised and glorified by Christ. The verse 29 is literally something they would recite. We're going to the water saying, I'm getting baptized for Jim today who died 10 years ago. No, it was for us. We are the dead and yet alive. We are the walking paradox. Paul's point is very simple. It would be absurd for a believer to act out his deadness and burial and to demonstrate his hope of glory through the sacrament of baptism while denying the doctrine of resurrection. If there is no or were no resurrection, there would be no need for its symbol and sacrament. Baptism. We don't need it if there's no resurrection. You go under the water and you're saying, I'm dead. And maybe you don't come out. You just drown and die there. Because guess what? You're going to be dead forever. You're never going to be raised to life. Garland again says, Baptism assumes death and resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then baptism becomes a pointless rite that falsely represents something that will not happen. The dead will not rise. That's what Paul is talking about in 29. Christian baptism, not some funky, weird, pagan rite. We are the dead. And if you got baptized, you displayed that deadness and the hope of future life and resurrection and glory in Christ. That's his point. It's pointless if you don't believe in resurrection. None of that would be true. Let's move to our second point. Number two, if there were no resurrection, suffering and even dying for Christ would be of no value. This is exactly what he says in verses 30 to 32. He begins by saying, we are in danger every hour. Stop there. Paul appeals to his own life. Remember, firstly, he appealed to baptism. Now he appeals to his own life to reveal an inconsistency between the motivation behind his apostolic travail and the reality if there is no resurrection of the dead. The reason Paul and the other apostles put themselves in danger every hour was because of, obviously, love for Christ. Secondarily to that, and sometimes primarily to that, it wasn't just that they loved Christ because Christ first loved them. It was also they put themselves in harm's way and danger because of the hope of future glory through resurrection. That's what drove them to take risks and put their lives on the line for the gospel. I could parallel to myself. It's the very reason why I spent two to three days writing sermons and, and then coming down here and unpacking the word of God for you. It's because of the hope of future resurrection and glory. The ultimate prize. And a prize that I can't even earn. It was earned for me through the merits of Christ. Paul is saying that, you know, we, we face death every day. We go through travails and troubles and persecutions and tribulation because of 
the resurrection and future glory that we'll get. In 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27, Paul does catalog some of the dangers that he actually faced. It was up to that point when he wrote that second letter. He describes imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times 40 lashes, less one. That's almost a death sentence. Three times beaten with rods. He says, I was stoned. That means to have rocks hurled at you until you're not breathing. He almost died. Three times I was shipwrecked in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, hunger and thirst in cold and exposure. That's quite a list of dangers that he faced. But you see, for Paul, the dangers were worth the prize. At one point, he called all of the terrible dangers that he and all believers face, he called them light momentary afflictions that were preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. His point in, in verse 30 is simple. If there were no resurrection, he would be foolishly risking his life and experiencing hourly dangers for nothing. John MacArthur says, why, why make this life miserable if this life is all there is? Why be in danger every hour if we have no security to look forward to? Why die daily, that is, risk your life in self-denying ministry if death ends it all? Uh, he did a really good job in that small paragraph of capturing Paul's thought. In verse 30, verse 31, Paul says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says this, I die every day. Wow. It's the, the very thought of no resurrection and glory for believers caused Paul to vehemently declare, I protest, brothers. You see it there, right, at the beginning of 31. I protest. Just them entertaining the idea that there's no future resurrection of the dead, that Paul and no Christian will ever be raised to glory and new life. It just, it caused him to say, I protest. And that thought of no resurrection should create the same passion within us and within every believer. All is lost if there is no resurrection of the dead. There's no salvation. There's no Savior, there's no future glory, there's no new body, there's no heaven, there's no new heavens and earth, no new Jerusalem. There is nothing. So, so if somebody is teasing this idea, this isn't something they say, well, I just think you're incorrect. We should say, I protest. How could you say that? And you call yourself a believer. That's what Paul is saying, I protest. If Christ's resurrection on Easter morning was the only resurrection, as some of the Corinthians believed, then his being raised was no victory for us whatsoever. He would have not conquered death, but only made death a greater mockery for those who put their trust in him. Then it would be true of us that we should, of all men, be most pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Right? If this isn't true, we are to be pitied above all others because we have believed one of the greatest lies ever. And we have sacrificed and hoped and given and done everything and died to self for nothing. That's the point. I protest you even thinking that. Notice his boast in the middle of 31. He says, I protest, brothers. And then he says, by my pride in you. 
the Corinthians were the fruit of his apostolic labor and even the fruit of his suffering. 1 Corinthians 9, 1-2. This is not some kind of self-serving boast here in verse 31, but rather confirms that Christ has worked in and through Paul and his, uh, as his apostle. Right? He says, you are my apostle, and it shows that he's worked through him. Why? Well, the life of Jesus had been made visible in the Corinthians' lives and bodies. 2 Corinthians 4.10, you know, you could see some fruit there, and you could see the Spirit's work there. You could see that they believed the gospel that Paul preached, that they responded positively to all the, you know, all the prayers that Paul was offering up to the Lord on their behalf, that they converted and they believed and trusted and repented. It was all there. And Paul says, you're my boast in that regard. The Corinthians were, in a sense, Paul's workmanship and boasting Christ Jesus the Lord, the product of his labor and evangelism and preaching. Brings a, a minister great joy to see people converted and following Jesus. And he never takes the credit for that, but God is good enough to share in that with him. He is the vehicle that God used and worked through to get that gospel there. So in some sense, when you see someone converted under your ministry and sharing the gospel it's something that you get to enjoy and kind of revel in but it is god's work it's not our work we're just the planter but it's still an amazing thing to be there and to be present for that and to not leave them and say okay now go be a disciple it's your responsibility to help disciple them too if you can but it's a wonderful thing and paul is saying that in light of this paul is saying i die every day for you and for this work do you think that I would sacrifice and suffer like this if there were no resurrection? Do you think that I would have even come to Corinth and shared a resurrectionless gospel with you? Do you think that I would have suffered all the dangers and travail that I experienced trying to get to you? Do you think I would have went through all that? No, I would not do it. That's what he's saying here. J-Mac, again, if there were no resurrection of the dead, then suffering and dying for the sake of the gospel would be masochistic. Suffering for suffering's sake, for nothing else. That is masochistic. Verse 32a, Paul says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And he's just continuing to use examples from his own travails and tribulation and suffering to illustrate that he did it all for, because there's a resurrection. He says, what human motives could I have had for continually risking my safety in life if there were no resurrection? Would I have fought with beasts at Ephesus? That's what he says. That's a good paraphrase of 32a. Now, we cannot be certain as to whether Paul actually fought with literal beasts at Ephesus, but it seems entirely possible since, since that was the kind of the case and interpretation that's supported by tradition. That, you know, when he went into Ephesus to preach the gospel, maybe he had to deal with some lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. Who knows? I think some people take that literally. I don't think he was referring to literal animals. I think he was referring to people because they can be like beasts. Beastly people, beastly crowds that tried to kill him. I think that's who he's referring to. Those are the beasts. Acts 19, 23 to 41 tells us, and this is, speaks of Paul's time in Ephesus. It tells us that a, a massive riot broke out in Ephesus following Paul's preaching. 
You know, there's so many preachers in pulpits today that are trying to be friends with everyone and trying to be liked and accepted. And, you know, whenever Paul went and preached, everyone wanted to kill him. Just seems completely opposite to the objective or goal of ministers today. You don't have to stand up here and be a jerk, but you got to handle the truth. And the truth is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Paul talked about that early on in this book. But it talks about a massive riot that broke out after Paul's preach. Let me tell you, that's successful preaching. If a whole town is ticked off and rioting, you've done your job and you've done it well. <laughs> By today's standards, they'd be like, man, he's, he's terrible. I mean, look at that. He made everyone mad. He deviated from preaching about the love of God only. He cleared out at the pews, didn't he? With a lot of pewy people. A silversmith named... Demetrius, he had a thriving idol-making ministry <laughs> or business per se, right? He, had, he was like the leading, by the way, this is a city in, back in Paul's day, this is a city of 225,000 people. This is a city the size of Modesto. Probably didn't have as many homeless encampments, but you can imagine there was probably two or three. But this is a massive city. It, by census status, or uh, statistics, 225,000 people in antiquity is a massive city. Cities were not that big back then. And so this is a huge city, and Demetrius is the number one idol maker in the city. And he makes idols devoted to Diana, the Greek goddess. Probably the Greek goddess of sex and something else, because every goddess or god had something to do with sex. And they were all reflections of the Roman people and the Greco-Roman people. So they were a very sexually charged culture. You say, wow, look at today here in America. Well, <laughs> the Roman Empire was up there. Probably has the speed a little bit. But in any case, this guy is, he owns a thriving idol-making business. And yet when Paul preaches the gospel, people hear the gospel and they begin to repent and they start, they begin to stop buying his idols. What the heck do I need this for? I've got Jesus now. Oh, by the way, this is really a handy idol. I can even drink from it. That was good. I needed that. But, but they, were, they were looking at the things, and they're like, I don't, I got this down at, the, at, the, at, at, you know, at Pier 1. I got this over at World Market. It's like a little Buddha. I don't need this thing anymore. So they stop buying his idols. Well, his profits start to go down, and he gets ticked. And he goes around street by street blaming Paul for the loss of commerce. And this whips the entire city into a frenzy. You thought the BLM stuff was interesting or maybe the Palestinian stuff today with what they're doing? No, 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 no. This is, this is, this is an entire city in an uproar, dragging, literally grabbing a hold of the associates of Paul and dragging them down to the town center to kill them. Paul, too. All because he went in there and preached the gospel. And if God had not intervened through the city clerk, Paul and his associates would have been killed on the spot. Point being, those are the beasts. Those beastly men and women who love their idols and hate God and hate Christ and hate the messenger. Those are the beasts. And Paul almost died there. His point here is that if there were no resurrection, then his motive for fighting with beasts, 
beastly crowds at Ephesus, it would have been just purely human. And if you stop and think about like, right, he wasn't motivated by something divine or something heavenly. It would have been, if there's no resurrection, that he would have been doing it for human reasons is what he's saying. And now you have to stop and ask yourself this question. What human reward could possibly make taking on an entire city of more than 250,000, actually, it wasn't two and a quarter, 250,000 angry idolaters worth it? That's a suicide mission. That's like standing in Ceres at the airport and, and looking down Mitchell saying, I'm going to go fight Modesto for 10 grand. You wouldn't even make it over the bridge. The homeless camps would come up and kill you. I mean, that's a, that, that's a stupid idea. And Paul is saying, what human, I mean, if, if there's no resurrection, then you're saying that I would have done it for just purely human reasons and not for some future glory, but for some glory in this life. So, so, so I've got my army of me and two other guys. We're going to go out and take on Ephesus. Where's the logic in that? It's highly illogical. That's his point. There's no way I would do something. I would fight any beast anywhere, whether it be a lion, tiger, or bear, oh my, or beastly people for a human reward. There's no way. That's his logic. There is no earthly prize that could motivate a right-minded individual to accept such a challenge. That's a suicide mission. Paul did it not for human reward, but for heavenly reward, and more specifically, because of the resurrection and glory that it will bring. That's his point. 32b, if the dead are not raised, listen to this, if the dead are not raised, if there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for we die tomorrow. Mm. Did you know that he's quoting Isaiah 22 right there, verse 13? That's a quotation. That's not him just writing that. He's quoting a verse. And he says, if the dead are not raised, why not just eat, drink, and be merry? I don't think that's what Isaiah had in mind, but he's using it for that here. Paul is. Why, why would, if there's no resurrection, why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Because life is just so ultimately short and has no meaning and death is the outcome for all of us. Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? That's what he's saying. If there's no resurrection, why, why, why wouldn't I just do that and eat, drink, and be merry? Why, 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 would I, why would I put myself in danger every hour if there's no resurrection? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Well, why die every day? Why fight beasts? Just eat, drink, and be merry. Just live a normal, regular, pagan life. If there is no resurrection, why not just pursue sensual pleasure instead? That's what he's ultimately saying in 32b. Why not join those who try to drown out death's relentless knell with ceasing revelry, right? Or revealing, reveling, just, just party, 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 party death out of your mind. Sing about it. We're on a highway to hell. Who cares? Give me some more vodka. All they're doing is killing the reality of death. Why not be like that? That's what Paul is saying. If life ends at death and there's nothing beyond that, why not live it up? That's what Paul is saying. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us of an interesting custom of the Egyptians. I'm, I'm basically done, but let me read this. This is a really interesting custom that the Egyptians had. What they would do is that at any sort of big dinner gathering or a dinner party or something like that where everyone was eating and drinking and they all had the good wine and everything and everyone was drinking and pretty much getting drunk. Toward the end of the party, 
there would be a group of like pallbearers who would come out carrying a casket over their heads with the casket open and then a carved body in it. It wouldn't be a real person. It would be a body that had been carved out of wood that would look like a person and it would be painted and all that. And so they would walk around like a funeral procession in these parties and they would say, live it up because this is what's coming. This is it. This is what you're facing. This is your reality. So drink, my friends. You know, Pastor Cameron, he, shared, he shares, and he shared it with me and you guys, I think, a few times, but he shares a story of a, a funeral he once attended where the friends of the deceased basically turned the graveside ceremony into a profanity-laced drunken party. They were like pouring alcohol on the casket and, you know, just doing shots and just loud and obnoxious and profane. It might help for me to add that they were bikers. Uh, bikers tend to live just for the moment, you know, and not all of them, but some. Uh, but in any case, uh, he's sitting here watching this play out and, you know, he's a, he's a pastor. He's a Christian and he's a pastor and he understands the significance of what's happening what's happened and what's happening in this event, and he's marveling at the response of the biker friends. I don't marvel at their response. They're doing just like the Egyptians. That's what people who have no hope do. That's what people who put all their stock in this life do, right? Party like it's 1999, Prince got that and just party and party and party, and then this is the finality of it. You're just gonna end up in the dirt and it's over. Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Those bikers at that, at that funeral and, and those party goers at Egyptian parties, they had this as a life motto. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. See, why did they do this? Because for them, this life is all there is. You see, resurrection brings endless hope, right? You know, the Corinthian church was a bit of a hopeless church because it was tampering with its own resurrection. If you mess with the resurrection, you steal the source of hope. So resurrection brings endless hope, but no resurrection brings a hopeless end. And that's what you see at that funeral. And that's what you see at Egyptian dinner parties. And that's what you see playing out in the Corinthian church because they had tampered with their own resurrection. And Paul is saying, you're acting as if there isn't a resurrection and you're just living for the now. Obviously, you don't have hope. I mean, if you think about it, if the dead are not raised, we may as well live by the same code. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, right? That's Paul's point in verse 32b. There is nothing to look forward to if there's no resurrection, and we may as well live for now. But the Bible says that we're dead, so we can't possibly live for the now. We're to live for the future and we're to keep our eyes on heaven. And you just cannot do that if there's no resurrection of the dead. Amen? We understand Paul's logic and his argumentation here. It's really good. 
As we shifted to the next section, well, first of all, we have two more points to deal with. And then after that, he's going to literally answer the question, well, then what will it be like when we are raised? He'll talk about that, which is, I think is going to be fascinating. But we still have two more points to deal with because he's not done with his argumentation. He's still going to hit them with two more solid examples as needed. You affirm the resurrection? I hope so. It's because of the resurrection that you're alive in Christ today because you've already been spiritually raised. One day you'll be physically raised. Have you been baptized? Maybe you haven't been baptized yet. What a wonderful opportunity. We have a tank right behind there. It's even heated. I like to do the baptisms because it's like going to the spa. <laughs> wonderful opportunity for you to show that you are dead to yourself and to this world, that you are died to yourself and are alive in Christ, you're buried with Christ, and you'll be raised with him one day. That's the symbolism. If we don't affirm resurrection, I don't even know why we'd have that tank over there or anything else. That's really his point here.